Remember when you got that phone call? The one that just left you flat-footed? Just going, what? What was that? What just happened? For many of you, you're like, which one? If you're human, you inevitably ask one or all of these types of questions of God when that happened. Why did God allow this? Why me and not someone else? Is God punishing me for my sin? How is this fair? Does God even care? You know how I know that God deeply cares for us, even in our suffering? He gave us the book of Job. This book shows a man who's wrestling profoundly with all of these types of questions and more. And it's a gift to us as followers of him, as followers of Christ. See, the question is not if we will suffer, it's when. And so we must prepare our minds and our hearts now for suffering. And if you don't, when it hits, you'll be tempted to run away from God instead of run to God. See, our theology of suffering will change our lives for better or worse. The book of Job is such a gift to us because it helps get our minds and our hearts right around suffering. Listen to what uh, James says about Job. James 5, 10 through 11 says, Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed to those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, Job, Job responded with endurance, with patience. And so we are called to do the same. Now we're about to enter a journey that's going to be heavy, that's going to be deep as we go through the book of Job. But I hope you can see the book of Job for what it is, an incredible gift to us today. So, let's open up to Job chapter 1. And I want you to meet Job. We're going to see who he is in verses 1 through 5. Job 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So meet Job here. Verse 1, we see he's a godly man. Now, we're not, I, I'm 
really unsure where us was. Us was. I didn't. Yeah, okay. But don't know where us was. Uh, it wasn't in Israel. That's what's important. So, uh, which makes it even more impressive how God honoring Job was. He wasn't like surrounded with a bunch of God's people. No, he's just out somewhere, kind of in the middle of nowhere, obeying God, following God. And he's a man of complete integrity, it says. So with Job, what you see is what you get. He wasn't perfect. Job had his sin struggles like any, any other person. But he was the same at home, at work, and everywhere he went. He had complete integrity. And what everyone saw was that Job feared God. He was in awe of God. He turned away from evil. Job worshipped. He loved and he obeyed God. And we actually just got done with 1 Timothy. And we saw in 1 Timothy 3 for elder qualifications that they need to be men of complete integrity. So the general cadence and rhythm of their life is that they are godly. And that is what Job was. Now, it's super key to this whole book that he was a godly man. Because as you, most of you know, Job is about to go through the ringer. And so while this, this book wrestles with the question of why, and Job wrestles with why, and the reason is not that he's being punished for sin. And that's going to be something we have to keep in mind here. This isn't, all this stuff isn't like, well, Job, you were, a be, you were terrible, so this is what happens, right? You, you know, you earned it. Nope, that's, that's not what's going on. Bad things do happen to godly people. We see in verse 2, he's the father of ten, seven sons and three daughters. Remember that. It just, it kind of just comes and goes, but he's a father of ten. Verse 3, we see that he's very wealthy. Job, this happened sometime in B.C. Date unknown, all sorts of speculation for different reasons, all sorts of different dates put out there. I don't feel confident saying it was at this certain time, but certainly B.C. And the currency at that time was livestock and servants. So when it says he was the greatest man of the East, it means he was the wealthiest man the most well-known in this region that he lived in, and certainly as well the most godly guy around. So modern day, think like, think like Elon Musk's wealth meets Billy Graham's godly character. Okay, that's, that's Job. And we see in verses 4 and 5 that he is the spiritual leader of his family. Now there's no evidence here that his kids were throwing crazy ungodly parties. It's... it's speculated these were more like family birthday parties that are described here. And there's no signs that his kids were ungodly. But he cared so much for his kids and revered God so much that he didn't take any chances. So Job, Job knew there was consequences for sin. And he knew there wasn't just consequences for things you do, but also for your heart, for the things that you think, for your motivations, for the, for the reason behind why you do things or don't do things. So he led his family well by covering them with sacrifices regularly. This would be like modern day, like a dad that goes to each of his kids individually and regularly and prays, not just that they would be good little boys and girls, but instead prays for their hearts, that they would genuinely love Jesus in their hearts. Good idea, by the way. 
be praying for our kids' hearts individually. So there's Job. He's a godly man. He's a father of ten. He's wealthy. He's the spiritual leader of his house. Now, verse 6, scene change. We're suddenly in heaven, and we get this view. We get this kind of like fly-on-the-wall view of this scene where God and Satan have a conversation. So verse 6, hard shift. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. So suddenly, verse 6, we're in heaven observing a conversation between God and Satan. And verse 8, God brags about Job to Satan. And Satan knows God's right about Job. So instead of going after Job's character, because there was nothing to go after, this sly snake goes after Job's motives. And so let me reread verses 9 through 11. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan is saying here, Job doesn't actually care about you, God. Job just likes the stuff you give him. Job just likes your gifts. Job just likes your blessings. Take it all away, I guarantee he'll curse you. And God rather astonishingly goes, all right, go for it. More on the disturbing part of that later. Why? Like, why would God do that? But God knew something that Satan didn't know. God knew that Job's motives were 100% pure. God knew that Job followed God because he genuinely loved God, not because of the blessings he was receiving from God. And this is a haunting, yet reassuring truth to us today as well. God knows your true heart's motives. Why do you follow Jesus? Because you love Jesus? Because you adore Jesus? Or because he gives you good things? See, God knows your true heart's motives. Now, an encouraging note from this section. Satan, he's on a leash. He's on a leash. Verse 12, we see that. There are limits set by God to Satan's power. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but he's got an effective shot collar on. You better believe it. Praise God, Satan isn't ultimately in charge, amen? He is not in charge at all. One day, he's going to be locked up and burning for all eternity. So he's got an effective shock collar. He can't just do whatever he wants. 
So now we shift back to earth and Job's life. Verse 13, the phone call. Actually, four of them. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. If you know the story of Job, don't let the familiarity lose the heaviness of Job's pain. Feel the weight of the suffering on top of suffering on top of suffering that Job experiences here. Let me just try to bring this to life to us. Imagine you got a phone call today and it was your neighbor and you're at work and your neighbor's like, hey, um, I just saw someone break into your car and hotwire it and drive off with it. And while your neighbor's telling you that, you get another call and go, hey, wait, can you, can you wait a minute? I gotta take another call. Uh, and, and you take the call into your financial advisor and they're like, hey, your 401k that you've been putting money into for decades, yeah, it's all gone because the market's crashed. And while you're on the phone, you get another call and it's the police. And they're saying, yeah, here I'm at your house and it's burning and there's nothing the fire department can do about it. It's gone. It's gone. And then while that's happening, your spouse calls you. And you take the call. And you got 10 kids. And she, she must have had a really big van. You guys had a really big van. And here, here she is driving it. And someone T-bones the vehicle. And it rolls in the ditch. And all 10 of your kids are killed. And your spouse is the only one who's alive. Do you feel that? Do you feel the shock? Do you feel the agony? Do you feel the, the, the defeat in that? Job was a family man through and through. We saw that in the first five verses. And he lost all ten of his kids in one day. I can't imagine losing one of my kids. Lost all ten in one day. Why? Why does God allow suffering and evil? For his glory is the churchy Christian answer. What does that even mean? Right? I know that's in the Bible. 
I get it. But what does it mean? God allows suffering to further solidify in our hearts that he is all we need. That God is enough. That he is the point. We struggle so much with suffering today because if we're all honest, most of the time God isn't the point of our lives. We are. So if we are the point of our lives, suffering makes no sense. But if God is the point of our lives, it would make sense that he would allow and perhaps even orchestrate whatever was needed to make us solely dependent on him, to get us to a point where God truly is enough for us. You see, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. People thought that for centuries, but the sun does not revolve around the earth. God doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around God. See, suffering makes no sense if we're the point, but it's understandable if he's the point. We need him like the earth needs the sun. Now, we're always looking for specific purposes behind our suffering. And people, well-intentioned, say things like, you know, God has a purpose, God has a plan, and don't get me wrong, God has a purpose and he has a plan, right? He, he has purposes for everything. But sometimes, and oftentimes actually, we never find out on this earth what that was. So while God uses it all and allows it all, not everything is directly from God. Think of what we just read in Job. Did God murder Job's livestock and servants? No, actually, people did. They came in and did that in verse 15. Did God kill Job's kids? Verse 19. No, Satan did. Satan and people do evil, not God. But why would God even allow evil to begin with? Kenneth Samples says this. Yet, while the Bible reveals God's sovereignty, it also reveals human beings' moral culpability for wrongdoing. These paradoxical truths are both taught in Scripture, sometimes in the same verse. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible truths, but how God works them out is known only to Him. So why would God even allow any evil to begin with? The answer really is this, for reasons God only knows. And honestly, that's quite, comfort, that's quite comforting to me because it means that God is God and I am not. If I or anyone else could grasp God fully, he would cease to be God. Tim Keller, who we heard from earlier, puts it like this in his book, The Reason for God, which is a fantastic book, by the way. He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. I think he puts it better than I ever could. See, if God is 
the only one who is great and powerful enough to have the keys to the universe, then he's the only one that's wise enough to steer the vehicle. So why did God do this to Job? To show that he's enough for Job. To prove to Job himself that he is enough for him. To prove to God himself, to prove himself right that he is indeed enough for Job. And to prove Satan wrong that God was enough for Job. We always know that God allows evil to show that he is enough. To show you that he is enough. To prove to you that he is enough for you. To prove to him, that, to prove that God is right. That he is indeed enough for you. And to prove to others that he is enough. To display to others that following Jesus is not about his gifts. But to show others that you've got a treasure that can't be taken away by circumstances. Who wouldn't want that, Jesus? 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says it like this. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God allow suffering and evil? To show that he's the point. Show us that he's all we need. To refine us like those verses just say. Because he really is enough. Now let's look at Job's response to suffering. Verses 20 to 22. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. So verse 20, what did Job do? He lamented. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't paste on a happy face. And pretend like everything was all right. It was not all right. He tore his robe, which was a symbol of how his heart felt. His heart was torn in two. So he tears his robe because he's so distraught. And he shaves his head, which was a symbol of identifying with death. Because his kids and his servants just died. And he fell to the ground. See, Job was crushed with grief. He doesn't stuff his grief. He doesn't deny his grief and his emotions. Instead, he brings his grief to God. And even though he is, he is broken and crushed and distraught, he comes to God. And what does it say he does? He worships. He worships in grief. That's what lamentation is. It means you run to God instead of running away from God. And then Job, astonishingly, he speaks. And what he says is stunning. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Job probably wanted to hurl insults at God. Job probably wanted to ignore God. But instead, he, he speaks. And he speaks what he knows is true. See, he didn't decide that day that those things were true. He decided that well before he suffered. And that's the call for us. He understood that God is the giver of everything to begin with. And he, if he gave it all to me, then he certainly can take it away as well. So Job actually got what I taught last week in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And we didn't plan this at all, but these are the same concepts. So just to remind you, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, instruct those who are rich, which was Job in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. See, Job clings to what is truly life, God. And he worships. He chooses to say, God is enough. Many of you are familiar with the song by Matt Redmond, Blessed Be Your Name. You give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Blessed Be Your Name. Matt Redmond took that right from Job 1. More recently, we've done a song called I Choose to Worship by Ren Collective where it says, I choose to worship, I choose to bow. Though there's pain in the offering, I lay it down. Here in the conflict, when doubt surrounds, though my soul is unraveling, I choose you now. That was Job. Choose now to say, blessed be your name when you suffer. Choose to show everyone that God is enough for you, no matter what. You guys, I'm often tearing up during worship and can hardly sing. Because I look around, and even this morning, as, as I'm looking around at this very moment, as, as the pastor, I, I just know more of what's going on in people's life than anyone else in the room. And I see people who are just going through horrific things, choosing to worship Jesus. And I can hardly worship myself because I'm just so amazed. See, that's, you, you guys are an incredible example of Job to me. Choose now. Choose now to just worship your way through the storm. So why does God allow suffering and evil? Job actually gets an answer in chapter 38, verse 1. But it's not the answer he probably wanted or that you would expect. So I'll just say the first little line of Job 38, 1. And we'll go in more in depth later in later weeks. But it says, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he goes on in that chapter to basically tell Job that his finite mind cannot understand why he did this and allowed this. So he doesn't get a full answer, but he does get God. See, God speaks to Job. 
Why does God allow suffering and evil? I don't know. But I know that he is enough in our suffering. See, Job got something better than an answer from God. He got God himself. And that is what he offers to us today. So here's our hope. Our hope is that God is not unfamiliar with suffering. He understands. And we're going to start to turn our attention to the cross and towards communion in a few moments here. And I want to read this quote by Brad Hambrick from this article called Making Peace with Romans 8.28. And I would love to send that to you. A really good resource, especially if you're walking through some, some hard times with somebody else. But he says this. God doesn't dismiss your suffering because his was greater. Instead, he says the purpose of the incarnation and Calvary was so that he can identify with you and help you in your suffering. Christ does not minimize your suffering in light of his own. Rather, Christ wants his suffering to help make him more approachable during our times in need. You see, people often say, well, Jesus suffered so much, and his was just so much more than mine, so certainly I can go through that. I think God's just like, no, 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 you, you missed the point. It wasn't supposed to be a comparison thing. I did that to take care of your sin so that now I can identify with you through the Holy Spirit, and I, I can just understand what you're going through and walk alongside you. So in a second, we're going to go back to the back and, and um, whoever's taking care of communion, maybe it's already taken care of, but that'll be in the back uh, in a few minutes. But I want you to go back and get the juice and the bread and I want you to come back and sit down and, and wait to take it. We'll all take it together and I'll lead us through that. But while you're getting it and while you're probably waiting in line, I just want in complete silence in this room for you to just read and contemplate these scriptures, this last slide I have. See, I think silence is a lost spiritual discipline. Coupled with God's word and prayer, silence gives space for God to speak. And so I just want you to take the juice and the bread and really think about these scriptures and talk to God a little bit. And I know, silence is very awkward for a lot of us. But I want you to embrace it. Because maybe God has something very specific to speak to you this morning as we look at his word. So uh, I'll lead the way, but um, as you feel comfortable, come and get communion and then come have a seat and uh, contemplate these scriptures.
as you take out the bread. I just want you to remember that Jesus gets it. He gets your pain. He understands. He knows. He gave his life for us. His body was broken for us. Let's remember that he gets us as we take this. And as we open up the juice, which which represents Jesus' blood that was spilled, of that last line, Hebrews 4, 16, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. See, he, he understands. And so this week, as you go through challenging things, which we inevitably do in this life, remember, remember that he is right there with you and he will give you what you need. He will give you the grace and mercy you need for that situation. Lean into him this week and remember that he understands. Let's take this together. Jesus, we just thank you so much that you get it. You understand. You you don't hold up your act of suffering on the cross as something to like hold over us to go, look, look at me, I suffered more than you. No, instead you go, I get it. And you are my child and I'm right here. And so even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because you're right there with us. We thank you that you are our shepherd and that we have all that we need even when life is crumbling around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.